Good day to you, and welcome to episode 27 of You Don't Have to Yell. I'm your host, Dan Sally, and for those who've been listening to prior episodes, you'll notice that I'm forgoing the standard intro music, and I'm going to ignore the snarky comments for February, as we're going to be diving into a sensitive subject that I think is worthy of our attention, and to be frank, our respect. February is Black History Month, and I knew when I started the podcast in August that I'd want to dedicate February to the subject. And if you dig into U.S. history, what you'll find is that there is a consistent and recurring effort to construct and maintain a racial hierarchy in this country that originally put white Anglo-Saxon Protestants at the top and eventually Northern European Christians. And, you know, we caught a glimpse of this in the very first episode of this podcast when we discussed how Chinese immigrants arrived during the Civil War and found themselves on the wrong end of a debate on what America's racial identity was. And to give you a little background, I was educated in what I like to call white people black history, which goes something like this. First, there were the slaves, and that was bad. And then Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves and we fought the Civil War and things were a little bit better. And then Martin Luther King Jr. marched on Washington and everything was fine. And we have Barack Obama to prove it. And then something about George Washington Carver and peanuts that I don't quite remember. But given the earlier conversations I'd had on white supremacist philosophy in respect to Chinese immigrants in the 1800s, I wanted to dive deeper into the origins of this philosophy, how it evolved over the years and what remnants of it we see in culture today. And for people of color, most of what you're going to hear in the next few episodes is going to be a foregone conclusion for you all. Uh, But for the white folks listening, my hope is that we're going to walk away from this with a deeper understanding as to how we arrived at this point as a nation, what remnants of structural racism still exist, and I think most importantly, what vestiges of cultural racism remain in us that we need to be consistently aware of and really act against if we're going to move forward as a society. And so we're going to begin the month with Nikki Brown, professor of African-American and Africana studies at the University of Kentucky. And in today's episode, we talk about the origins of white supremacy in America, the echoes of it in today's political dialogue, and the surprising origins of Forrest Gump. Yes, Forrest Gump. And I'll forgo any spoilers. But let's say this episode is kind of like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. If you didn't just stop playing right now, I'm almost marginally offended. But I did say no snarky comments. I did not say no terrible jokes. And that one was pretty much teed up for me. So with that out of the way, Nikki Brown. I think I told you too in, in in our first conversation, I don't think I worded it the right way, but really, you know, I said like primarily like the, the the people I was I was really interested in communicating a lot of this stuff to were white people, mm-hmm. and not in an exclusive way, but more so in a way that I feel that speaking for myself, a lot of folks were brought up non-racist. They were brought up with the idea that all people should be should have equal access to education, equal access to jobs, housing, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yet, I feel like there are certain cultural assumptions that we have, and there's a certain amount of social conditioning that goes on in this country that allows people who are otherwise well-intentioned to either enable or promote racist ideology. 
And, and so, you know, my goal mm-hmm. in this series was really to dig into our history and really to dig into, you know, how we got to 2019 and what happened between, you know, the, the founding of this country and then what have we done right? You know, what's been worked out of the system successfully, but I think more importantly, what's still there? You know, what mm-hmm. do we need to work on? Because I, I feel like until we're able to confront those things, these issues of inequality are, are going to persist. And mm-hmm. I don't know how, I mean, am I going down the right track here? Because in, in a lot of ways, you live sort of blind to things until you choose to look at them. So let me get your, right. your thoughts on that. I think that these are all really salient questions, or this, this is a good way to sort of jump in. I have a lot of different thoughts about this, but as a trained educator, I -hmm. know that people really tend to have a lot of difficulty with, with like idea, uh, with big ideas or, or rather with, with theories that basically history is about people. And so when you tell people stories, it's a great way to talk about the big ideas. And so I think that that's probably a, a place where we can start. We can talk about people, uh, but we can also talk about, because I have a couple of stories to share, but, I, but we can also talk about some sort of the big ideas. And, and, um, I just, and, and I think that what we're trying to get at is how to f- figure out uh, maybe how 2016 or the election of Donald Trump Mm-hmm. Uh, and everything that came with it. Um, how did that happen? And um, and I, I would, uh, as many historians, I th- uh, yeah, as many historians, I would say that this was a long time in coming. And I don't know how it's going to end, but I do know that there's a great deal of, there, there are a lot of people with a lot of grievance and they've got their economic grievances all tied up in, into racial grievances as well. And, and the thing is, is that people can talk about their economic grievances and think that they're not talking about racial grievances until someone points it out to them. And then, and then people recoil and, and retreat and, and, and it's hard to sort of bring them back into the conversation. But I think that that's one of the things I'm learning as a educator is how to talk about race and racism in a way that, it invites particularly white Americans to look at the way that it has affected their own lives. I do think that the word racism or the word racist will shut a lot of white people down. And, Mm -hmm. and it's sort of like, once that word enters into the conversation, there is, is a natural defensive reaction uh, that, that comes up because I think for most most, and I'll say us as, you know, as, as I'll, I'll, I'll claim right of spokesperson for all American white people right now at the top of the episode. But, but I would say for most white folks, you use that word racist, that's connotated with Klansmen and, you know, the folks oh, who, the, so the segregationists. Yeah. And, and, and that's, and that's what, that's, that's really what most people think. And so they hear that word and they're like, well, I'm not that person. But you're saying so. You're happy to hear that. I'm interested in your yeah your, your comment there. Really, this is because this just occurred to to me. I think in the last ten minutes, I think one of the most beloved movies of the last two decades is Forrest Gump. 
Mm-hmm. I wonder, did it win an Academy Award? I think Tom Hanks did. I think it won every Academy Award there was. We to- mm. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Uh, uh, because because it, it, this just occurred to me today, like literally in the last 30 minutes. Okay. As I was doing research for this podcast, what I, what I, I, I had a hint of this memory. And then I looked it up and I realized it was true. The, the name of the film Forrest Gump, based on the novel Forrest Gump, uh, comes from Nathan Bedford Forrest. So we have the character Forrest Gump, who kind of is kind of like a zealot character. He kind of floats through life. He's got a lot of intellectual challenges or intellectual. He's differently abled, we, uh, we would say, in PC. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but he's able to make a life for himself and, and get married and have a son and live a very simple life in Alabama. But he's named after a Civil War general. Uh, his namesake, I think his grandfather, his great-grandfather in the novel, is Nathan Bedford Forrest. Mm-hmm. This is when we start talking about the, 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 the people. Nathan Bedford Forrest was a, um, uh, a, a much, he was a, a very experienced Confederate soldier. He was born dirt, dirt poor in Tennessee. Um, his father was killed uh, in a dispute, uh, like a business dispute, dispute when he was a very young one child, not, not, not older than 10. He grows up and he has to take care of his, his mother and his other brothers and sisters. And he joins the Confederate Army. And it, uh, and is widely, I think, remembered uh, uh, in the early parts of the Civil War as being a, a great marksman and, and and a pretty and a very strong leader of men. However, he gets him implicated in what's called the Massacre of Fort Pillow. And without getting too deep into the weeds about this, the Massacre of Fort Pillow was basically about some black soldiers had been had surrendered. And the Confederate soldiers, the, the black soldiers were, were on the, the Union side. And the Confederate soldiers, uh, yeah, were on the Confederate side. And the black soldiers had, had surrendered in this battle. And the Confederate soldiers shot on them and killed them anyway. He was implicated in that. But, but he was, uh, you know, he was never arrested or anything like that. After the war, after the Civil War, he, be, he moves to Memphis and tries to start up a couple of businesses. But they don't go anywhere. But what he does do, Nathan Bedford Forrest, is that he joins an incipient secret society called the KKK. And he is, becomes the first grand wizard of the KKK. Mm-hmm. So the movie, Forrest Gump, much beloved, won all these types of awards. Uh, we would call it whitewashing if we're being generous. Mm-hmm. First off. Before I heard that story, I absolutely hated that movie. Everybody loved mm. that movie. But how many, mm. how many, how many ways can somebody accidentally fall into success? Sure. Number one, you know. Number number two, you know, it's interesting you say that because I, one of the big debates we're seeing now is over the removal of monuments or of the mm-hmm. renaming of streets, squares, what have you. So a great example is uh, Yaki Way up here in Boston mm-hmm. and, and, and that's right near Fenway park. Uh, it's named after Tom Yockey, uh, who was president of the Red Sox and owned them for a number of years, but he was also a notorious bigot. Mm-hmm. And so now there's this talk of removing 
the name or renaming Yaki Way. And there's a big debate here because first off, boss at this point with the you know with the clergy abuse scandal in the 1990s i think sports remains the only religion in boston now Uh, so you know very very it's it's very very deep in the culture and there's a question as to well you know everybody in the past did something bad so why are we gonna why are we gonna change this but you know what what impact do you think it has in the dialogue and what impact do you think it has on people in general when we kind of turn a blind eye to this or when we don't care that Forrest Gump was named after uh, somebody who effectively massacred black soldiers in the Civil War. The parallels are really quite striking because Nathan Bedford Forrest also had a monument that Mm -hmm. stood in Memphis until 2017, that infamous Mm -hmm. summer when that monument was taken down in, in Memphis uh, four monuments in New Orleans, where I was living at the time, uh, were taken down. One of Robert E. Lee, one of uh, Jeff Davis. And of course, in Charlottesville, Virginia, the monument of Robert E. Lee. I think it's still standing, but it, but it was the uh, white supremacist groups had united around it at, at that big Unite the Right rally. And then, uh, uh, and then uh, uh, Heather Heyer was, was, was killed by... And several people were injured because a white supremacist got in this car and, and, and ran over them. So that's how it affects people, I think, right now. Uh, or at least um, these things aren't very far removed. I, I think that people uh, sort of look at these monuments and, and for a long, long time just sort of ex- expected or didn't really uh, understand what they stood for. And it wasn't really until recently that the average American could mm-hmm. look at them. The average white American uh, looked at them and, and realized that there was uh, a great deal of, uh, that they, they represented some, some very ugly things in the yeah. American past. I, and, and I want to make us, I want to make a differentiation there because African Americans had been protesting these, these monuments for something like a hundred years. It's just that uh, it wasn't until perhaps the election of Barack Obama or and mm-hmm. or or a decade or the five or eight years after that that people really began to think, or perhaps it wasn't until the election of, of Donald Trump that people really began to look at these monuments and think, what do they stand for? Now it's a, there are a lot of different there are a lot of different factors going on, but mm-hmm. yeah, that that reckoning came for white Americans. I think about a hundred years too late. When I look at the election of Trump. Really what I saw was I saw people just deciding either to ignore or not to care about the things he was saying about people of color and Mm -hmm. the things he was saying about uh, Muslims, the things he was saying about uh, Latinos, the things he was saying about Mm African-Americans. And, and really what I felt is I felt like it was almost like, have you ever, and this is kind of a trite analogy, but have you ever like walked into a place with a black light? And all of a sudden seeing like all the dust and like dandruff on your shirt and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I feel like Donald Trump was a black light on America where mm-hmm. effectively he came out, he said these things and you either had to choose to say that doesn't matter or you had to choose to say, no, this really does matter. And we can't have somebody in office who's talking like this. I didn't vote for him Let's specifically because of what he said, specifically because of those things. Um, I think historically I've, I've kind of alternated parties based on 
uh, you know, just how I felt about the candidates. But he was one who was strictly moral. You know, it was not even, I didn't even have to get to the policies. I, I feel like the ideology he espoused or the people who felt emboldened by him taking office, they've always existed. Yeah. And I think they've always existed just under the radar. If Barack Obama was us crossing a threshold and saying, hey, we've come this far, America, Donald Trump maybe was a, was a reminder as to how far we still have to go in a mm-hmm. lot of ways, I, I think. Mm-hmm. It's very, very difficult to say that his election was a good thing and that these discussions are good in the sense that it's, you know, a wonderful experience to be having these discussions. But, you know, maybe this is just the point we had to be brought to, to really like, to really confront it. And for people, I mean, for people even like myself to just have to, just have to take a side effectively. You know, people who mm-hmm. maybe aren't as affected, who 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 can who can effectively go through life not paying attention to it and not being affected by uh, by racism. Maybe it's a chance for those people to have to come out and really say, "Hey, this is not okay." I don't know. Any thoughts, right. Sarah? Yeah, I do. I do. I think one of um, the most memorable analogies to come out of the election of Donald Trump came out of Jelani Cobb, who writes for The New Yorker, and he's a, he's a professor at UConn. And he said that one of the, he said this, one of the, one of the great successes of the polio vaccine was that it nearly eradicated polio. Uh, I mean, and, and, and I mean, it, it, it's so good at eradicating polio that people forgot what it was like to have polio. And people, when people forgot what it was like to have polio, they could go for a couple of generations without the knowledge, without having to see someone in their family who had polio or, or have to work with someone or not have to, but, but, but without having been being confronted with the consequences of polio, people could come up with all types of conspiracy theories about why polio was a good thing. Somebody said, well, do we have to have a resurgence of polio? To remind people how bad polio is. That's a perfect analogy. Do you do you mm-hmm. do you feel it's like do you feel that it's a resurgence or do you think it's yeah. just like this stuff always existed and it's just people are more comfortable coming out and saying it now because it's, it's always office. existed. I feel like yeah. it has always existed. Sometimes, uh, I mean, when I taught this course on the history of white supremacy, uh, I, I was really. Um, taken with this idea, or I had come up with this idea of something called like an idea virus, uh, uh, like a, an inherently, like a, a virus. Uh, so, you know, there are good viruses and bad viruses, but white supremacy is being uh, a, a lethal virus. And the idea, as an idea, and, you know, there are some viruses that are always in the, always in circulation, you know, and, and, we're, and we're always trying to fight them. And, and we've, we've come to accept that they're there. We're never going to get rid of it, but we can always work against it. I was, I'm trying to think of a virus like that, uh, HIV. Uh, but there are some viruses that sort of peak. You know, you think you've gotten rid of it, and then, and then the conditions are right, and then it breaks out, and it, and it takes like a million people. And then mm-hmm. you get on top of it, and, and we think we've eradicated it again. And I'm not talking, and, and the idea that came to me was like the bubonic plague. I didn't yeah. realize that that's bubonic plague 
had a resurgence in the 1660s in, in England. My point is, is that when I think about white supremacy, I do think that it's always there in the American strain of thought. But I also think that it takes certain elements, it takes certain factors in the culture to allow it to break out again. And I think uh, what's happened in the 2000s and the 2010s is that it just broke out again. We had a certain, we had a, we had a, uh, if uh, you know, if I'm with my academic friends, I would say we would have a confluence of factors, <laughs> which means we have yet a lot of things going on. But but they all came along in order to add to that produce this very this moment, this moment of where we're really reckoning with the uh, with the uh, the breakout. We're really uh, we're, uh, white supremacy has really gone come to uh, gone to another level. You talk about white supremacy always being there in the American school of thought. If we go all the way back, if we go way back in history, and we even go back as far as the Bible, there's always been ethnic tribalism. And there's also always been this sense that it's okay to treat the other poorly. Even if you go into the Bible, there are passages that talk about how it's okay to enslave foreigners, for example. Or it's okay to do relatively horrible things to, to quote unquote the other. And it seems to me that that practice kind of exists without question. And, and the institution of slavery exists without question until the American Revolution and until people introduce this phrase that all men are created equal. Am I right in pinpointing the moment that the whole notion of, of white supremacy sort of evolved in a reaction? to this idea that all men were created equal. And now that we live in this world where all men are created equal, all of a sudden this institution of slavery only makes sense if there's something different about the people we're enslaving, and if there's some reason we are inherently better. Is that right, or, or am I missing the mark there? I would say that there is, there is a lot of growing support among historians of African-American history. That the founding of America, if you take into account its original sin mm-hmm. of slavery, that the America as an idea is founded in 1619. Hannah Nicole Jones and what she's done with the 1619 Project, I think, has brought to the forefront what a lot of Black academics have been saying for a couple of generations now. Or not just mm-hmm. Black academics, but historians of Black history. But that's the big, big view, uh, the, the big view that doesn't have the personal story. But the big, big view is that uh, 20, about 20 Africans arrive on the coast, I think of Virginia, and, mm-hmm. and are enslaved. Uh, they come to what is Virginia, enslaved, and, and, and slavery grows out of that, uh, out of that experiment. But what I would tell my students is that it's not soon after that uh, that the that, uh, commonwealths like Maryland and Virginia, because they're not states yet, because there is no in the United States, mm-hmm. but, but comp areas, regions like uh, Maryland and Virginia begin to enact laws that legalize slavery or, or, or mandate that, for example, in Maryland, that all Africans in the state of Maryland were slaves and that children of whites and blacks were slaves as well. I mean, so that's so that's just like thirty years after the thirty or forty years after the first Africans arrived. Um, mm-hmm. um, or we can talk about what happens in Virginia. 
and, and how how Virginia says uh, outlaws marriages between people who are of African descent and people who are considered to be white. But all of that means, though, is I mean, but that's hard to for people to grapple with. Really, it's hard to just get your mind around that uh, because there are no personal stories against uh, to it. I would say then that that to answer your question, because I mean, or to at least to address your concerns, yes, yes, the problem of slavery uh, uh, becomes most acute at the time of revolution, 1776, 1780, 1790, because the planters, uh, uh, the planting society. Uh, as well as the industrialists of uh, of the thirteen colonies, now the thirteen states, they slavery has been in the thirteen colonies for one hundred and fifty years. At that point, there was no intention of giving up slavery, but uh, many of the planters uh, tried. I mean, tried to escape responsibility for having slaves by saying it was the British that made us have, have slaves. The British mm-hmm. made us have slaves. And so, and so it's really their fault. It's not our fault. And, and what are we going to do now? And so at the founding of the United States, uh, again, uh, uh, yeah, the founding and the, and the passing of the constitution, they're still reckon, they're still reckoning with that, or at least they're still grappling, not reckoning. They're grappling with this idea. How do you have slavery? And not in the age of revolution, particularly a revolution that was supposed to cast off, uh, the uh, the monarch and the dictators who were enslaving uh, uh, the whites of of the thirteen colonies, and that's what the ar- argument was. And mm-hmm. and and they do it, and they they're able to deal with slavery, I think, rhetorically, but mm-hmm. not as a matter of fact. Like because as because as a matter of fact, of course, our constitution, uh, the, particularly the Bill of Rights, is is written by primarily by James Madison, a slave owner. Um, uh, who, who, who at one point in his life said slavery is bad and I wish we didn't have it, but did he free his slaves? No, no, Mm. he did not. Or Mm. George Washington, our first, uh, the country's first, uh, uh, and probably most revered president. Um, again, you know, uh, led troops, uh, 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 against the British to, to cast the British out of the 13 colonies. We know not only did he have slaves, but when one of his slaves, Ona Judge, uh, leaves him, she he actually hires like what would be kind of a bounty hunter to go after her and bring her back. Uh, uh, he, he full well knew what the, what the slave laws were in 1796. Uh, I think the first capital of the United States, I think may have been but yeah, it was in Philadelphia, but, but you couldn't have slavery in Philadelphia because Pennsylvania was a free state. So mm-hmm. what he would do is that he would go back and forth to Pennsylvania, uh, uh, move back and forth between Virginia and Pennsylvania and Philadelphia uh, every six months. He would bring his slaves uh, from Virginia to Pennsylvania, knowing mm-hmm. that Pennsylvania had a law that said you can bring your slaves here, but after six months they're free. So uh, he knew when the when the time, well, he knew when the date was when they were when they were going to become free, and at that date he would move them back to, to to Virginia for a few weeks and then start the process all over again. So he knew that too. Our first constitution, or our, our second constitution, the big one, um, yeah. has slavery in it, not in the three fifths 
uh, clause that people point to, but it has slavery in it in terms of the 1793 Fugitive Slave Act, which says, uh, which, which allows people to go after slaves if they have escaped. So, yeah. so, so, so it's slavery wasn't something, it, it wasn't uh, a theory. It wasn't mm-hmm. something abstract. It was something that the country relied on from the very mm-hmm. beginning. Uh, mm-hmm. I think the, the, we would now call it in the 21st century, a cognitive dissonance. So mm-hmm. some people say it's hypo, hypo, uh, hypocritical, but at this, but, but, but the, but the, the facts don't change. Uh, yeah. The man who said, give me liberty or give me death was a slave owner. Yeah. Uh, and he, he afforded his slaves, neither of those, of those options. A couple of things you said that jump out at me is, you know, we have free states and we have slave states. We have this struggle ideologically, let's say, about how to describe slavery in the Constitution. So it sounds like as far back as the history of slavery goes, there was also this moral debate going on. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Well, I would say I would say that that slavery itself has been um, renegotiated. The reasons for slavery, or mm-hmm. the or the American dependence on on slavery, has been renegotiated throughout the centuries. But the slavery that we know in the twenty first century mm-hmm. probably has its its closest um, approximation. Uh, uh, the, the, the best, uh, the, the slavery that we know is the slavery of the early 19th century, uh, the golden yeah. age of slavery between 1820 and 1860. But yeah, yeah, it goes back. I, I would say that you know, the, the, way that's, the, the way that people dealt with slavery is that, mm-hmm. is that I think in the 1600s, I'm again from 1620 or 1619 or mm-hmm. whatever, through about 17, yeah, through about 1776, the idea was that slaves were the descendants of uh, prisoners of war; that they were war booty. They were audacious rogues. There were there were there were slave rebellions. There were there were massacres. That that this was a population of people that were difficult to control. Enslaved people. You had to keep an eye on them. Uh, but uh, but uh, uh, but uh, and eventually, the country is going to have to deal. It's going to have to deal with slavery. Either get rid of it. Or enshrine it in some way. And that really is the first 100 years or so, 100, uh, 150 years. They're effectively saying, you know, we know we have to get rid of this at some point. Um, we know this probably isn't the right thing to do. But there are some really good reasons why we have these people enslaved. Because they can't, uh, because, uh, yeah. and, and that, it sounds like that's maybe the genesis of, of, of sort of of the idea mm-hmm. that, uh, or it's sort of the genesis of, of white supremacy, effectively in America, maybe, or, or the genesis of the, of that ideology, and absolutely. And now, you know, as as that moves on, there's this economic driver behind it because, of course, cotton is basically like the economic engine for the United States for the earlier part of the 19th century. Correct. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For all of the 19th century, I think that there's some there's some agreement among historians, or there's there's agreement among historians that cotton changes the game. Mm-hmm. Cotton is so profitable. Uh, um, it wasn't the first crop; it's just the most profitable crop. It's so profitable uh, it, it wipes all other crops out of existence because, of course, the, the colonists are going to try with tobacco, and they're going to try with rice, and they're going to try with uh, wheat. Um, it's important, I tell my students, 
to remember that all 13 colonies had slaves. All of them did. Um, many universities staked their financial independence on slavery, including the one that I graduated from, Yale University. Uh, and Harvard, Harvard has its ties. We know that Brown has its ties in slavery. Um, and if we get to it, Georgetown University would have gone bankrupt had it not sold its slaves. So every, all 13 colonies are involved in slavery up to a point. And then eventually, uh, Vermont gives it up. Not eventually, but they get, Vermont gives it up in like 1770. And Pennsylvania gives it up. And New York has emancipated slavery. Uh, and the only the only thirteen colonies that the first original thirteen states that don't are the lower south, the upper and lower south. But I, but I'm saying this for a purpose that slavery is used throughout the thirteen colonies. But around eight around the eighteen hundred, with the invention of the cotton gin, which is in seventeen ninety three, around eighteen hundred, cotton becomes the sole reason why slavery exists for the lower South. Meaning that once we find out that you can grow cotton just about anywhere, the cotton brings that money uh, that you can use cotton, of course, not just for clothing, but you can use it in shipping and you can use it in uh, other types of industries. That cotton becomes the way uh, that, that the United States is going to become a wealthy country. And you can't have that wealthy country without labor. And the best way to generate is to have labor that you don't have to compensate. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that's what slavery becomes. Slavery isn't just, I mean, slavery is a delivery system for cotton. But the way that the country moves from slavery is a problem in the age of revolution to slavery is vital and necessary and, mm -hmm. and benevolent in 1820 is through cotton and is through this idea that you can't have a wealthy country without black labor and that black and and that and that black labor um these people uh uh, uh you we can't compensate them we're not going to give them money for their labor because they would just throw it away anyway that's how slavery uh, and white supremacy are then justified that slavery mm -hmm. goes from being uh, you know, something that we got to get rid of to enslaved people are permanently inferior. Enslaved people need slavery. They need mm -hmm. white masters. They need uh, uh, the black men were savages. And so they needed the structure of slavery and black women were sexually promiscuous and they needed the discipline of slavery to, to, in order to be good uh, servants in the eyes of God. That's how, that's how white supremacy really becomes crystallized. So it's, it's, it's in the blood of the country long before the Civil War. It seems too, when I, you know, from what I've read, for example, of the, the colonists' initial perspective of the natives, it seems there was always this idea that, you know, white Christian Europeans are here to effectively civilize this part of the region. And of course, they you know, civilized it with smallpox and slavery. That's a, another, another issue. It sounds like maybe there wasn't like a, a conscious effort. It wasn't like, you know, cotton became this big deal and everybody thought, okay, well, we have to invent this philosophy to allow this economic engine to exist. But it's more that people kind of rested on these pre-existing assumptions. Yeah. Um, but again, the, the, the assumptions are crafted to, to, to support the need for cotton. I mean, I'm talking abstractly, but mm -hmm. I tell my students, 
uh, if there's anything that you have to understand about cotton, it's, it's this. All Half of the money that the United States made throughout the entirety of the 19th century, all of it from 1800 to 1900, half of the money that the United States made in exports is mm-hmm. due to one crop, and that is cotton. Yeah. Something like 75% of all enslaved people in the 19th century uh, worked chopping cotton. How did we ever have a civil war? Because it's, it, I'm, I tend to be kind of a cynic. It, mm-hmm. it seems anathema to me that we'd have this huge industry just generating tons of money, and that there would be a large enough group of people who would stand for a policy that just dismantled that engine, moral or not. Like it just seems, it's, it seems like such a sure. far leap. So, h- how did that happen? Yeah. So, what you're talking about is the abolitionist movement. The abolitionists were pretty pretty loosely organized uh, in the late 1700s and early 1800s. But they begin to sort of come together around uh, the 1830s. I, I tend to think that the abolitionist movement, abolitionist movement grows in areas that were least impacted by slavery. Which means they didn't, it's not that they didn't have slavery, because they did. Vermont did, Pennsylvania did, Massachusetts did. Of course it did. But mm-hmm. what happens is that the, 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 the less dependence a state or region has on slavery, the more likely an abolitionist movement was going to grow there. Mm-hmm. And so, and so, uh, and so we have sort of our, our, the, the, the big names in abolition and in, in, in abolitionism, um, Harriet Beecher Stowe and William Lloyd Garrison, Walt Waldo Emerson, some really big figures in sort of white abolitionists. But what happens is that I think white abolitionists, they, they begin to coalesce uh, as a group in the 1830s. And they, they're, they're really definitely troubled when they hear the stories of escaped enslaved people. Um, I mean, the most famous es- escaped enslaved person is... Frederick Douglass, uh, but there are many, many others who have written memoirs, and these stories get out there. And at first, the the abolitionist movement uses the enslaved people as kind of like props. You know, they talk about how bad slavery is, and then they ask the white person, the black person, to get up and say, I was a slave, and give their testimony, and people are outraged, and then the black person sits down. What happens then, however, is that many, uh, many former enslaved people begin to start their own organization. The reason why the abolitionist movement moved so slowly at first was because many whites thought that giving an adequate rationale for the end of slavery, that that would work. And it Mm -hmm. really isn't until the formerly enslaved uh, in the 1830s come up with this idea, 1820s, 1830s, and say, no, 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 no. Um, Slavery is something that the country is so deeply rooted in. Maybe we're going to have to fight this out. Uh, Now, Haiti had done that, like I said, and Nat Turner had done that, and there were several, several other slave, uh, slave insurrections. But the idea around the 1830s that there might have to be a civil war, I think, starts with black abolitionists who recognize earlier more than anybody else, that the United States was not going to give up slavery willingly. And they were right. Do you think, on the abolitionist side, did they look at this issue of slavery 
and think to themselves, well, all men are equal and there's no reason we should have one group of people enslaved and one group of people free? Or did they look at it as slavery is horrible, but these folks are still different from us? Oh, it was the second one. It was the second one. Yeah. Um, Abolitionism, it's hard to even say that it's monolithic because there's so many different strains of it. Yes, yes, there are some abolitionists who, white abolitionists, who say slavery is a moral equal and we are all children of God. Or we are, you know, there's a real strong religious aspect to it. But there are other abolitionists who say that slavery is evil because it's such a drag on the country. uh, that, Mm -hmm. That the country can't uh, revolutionize the can't, not revolutionize the country. Country can't industrialize because it because half the country is deeply wedded to an agricultural system that resists industrialization. The country can't modernize, uh, so on and so forth. So those people say we got to get rid of slavery, and the way to get rid of slavery is to get rid of enslaved people. Meaning, there's a strain of abolitionism that says you got to uh, that that the only way to rid the country of slavery is to put all black people on a boat and ship them to Liberia, Africa. Abraham Lincoln at one point advocated just that. There are numerous cases where uh, a state like Wisconsin, which is, which is in the abolitionist column, says no slavery in Wisconsin, also says that if you are black and you, want, and you are free and you want to enter Wisconsin, you got to pay $500 to get in here. And we're not going to give you the right to vote. And you're not going to be able to serve on the military and you're not going to be able to testify in court. So uh, states that we think of as being sort of uh, abolitionists like Ohio and Indiana and Wisconsin, and Michigan are also anti-black. There are states that are anti-slavery, but not necessarily pro-equality. Right. And so what, why don't they, why are they even, why do they even bother being anti-slavery then? Because black people are considered to be beastly immigrants. Black people are going to bring down, drive down wages for white people. That's the way we talk about immigrants now. Oh, yeah. Um, Mexico. We can't, you know, uh, uh, you can take, again, you can take a state like Iowa or you can take a state like Wisconsin. And they'll say, and you'll talk to white folks there, and they will say, listen, we love Mexicans. We love them. We love Mexican food. We love Taco Bell. We love Chipotle. Yeah. But we can't have Mexican people yeah. uh, <laughs> in our community because they're going to work for lower wages and, and drive down the wages and take jobs that away from white people. That, I think, gives us a good point to to jump into the the post-Civil War, the Reconstruction era, how did this philosophy evolve after that point? Or did it evolve? Was it still the same philosophy just without legalized slavery? I think it was the second one. It was the same philosophy without legalized slavery because that vigorous defense of slavery, particularly this idea that Black people are naturally inferior to whites in every mm-hmm. way that's measurable. The Ku Klux Klan is established uh, among many, there were many white supremacist organizations that are established right after the Civil War. And I, and I, and I tell that to my students, and they're like, what? How can that be? Uh, the country just fought a war to end slavery, and yet white, supremacy, white supremacist groups still are founded and, and are popular. How is that possible? 
Well, it's because there is a, a particularly deep running fear that, uh, that blacks will exact their revenge on whites, that, that there's something fearful, that's something to be feared about newly, newly freed blacks that they mm-hmm. will pick up a gun or pick up some type of, or organize themselves into a militia and march on white homes and kill everybody in it. Or they, and, and a, a particularly, now this is, that this comes later in the century, but a particularly pernicious fear is that black men have secretly lusted after white women. And now, and now that the civil war is done and black men are free, that black men will just go into white um, neighborhoods and snatch any white woman that they can find and rape her and then force that woman to marry him. Nothing like that happens, but it, but it doesn't make the fear go away. In fact, um, I think a good counterpoint to Nathan Bedford Forrest, where we first started this conversation is Robert mm-hmm. Smalls. Robert Smalls is, is born uh, enslaved in South Carolina and he captures uh, with a band of, of, uh, of other enslaved people, he captures a Confederate uh, ship, gets all the, his friends and family and their friends and family onto the ship and sails away and sails and takes the ship into Union controlled territory and surrenders and he frees himself and he frees everybody on the ship. He has this illustrious career, this crazy this cr- career. He becomes, of, of all things, I mean, after the end of the Civil War, he becomes a Republican. Um, uh, uh, in the state of South Carolina, he serves in the Republican legislature. And it's in South Carolina that, that the first and free compulsory schools in the United States are established. Schools for black children and white children. Uh, uh, these schools were meant to be interracial and they, and they are, are meant to be populated by teachers from all over the country. Those schools descend, those teachers come to South Carolina and Louisiana and Alabama. And he, uh, and he along with other black Confederate, I'm not Confederates, black Republicans in South mm-hmm. Carolina uh, between 1868 and 1878, 1880, uh, really bring South Carolina back from the brink of complete chaos during reconstruction to a, to a state, to a state where, where they can think, yeah, we're proud of what we've done. It's, it's, it's running properly. It's, they've got a, they've got a great deal of, um, they've got a lot of stuff going on. Uh, South Carolina is now, is now good. Uh, uh, but there, but, but the point of this is that to my knowledge, there is no monument, no, no state monument uh, for mm-hmm. South Carolina. Therefore, Robert Smalls in South Carolina, and in fact, we we learned about Robert Smalls from Ta-Nehisi Coates' book "We Were Eight Years in Power," in which Robert Smalls says, "In this, in uh, in which Robert Smalls is quoted as saying, the only thing that South Carolina feared more than bad Negro government was good Negro government." Hmm. This kind of gets us back to the beginning of the conversation, too, because mm-hmm. you mentioned there's no monument to Robert Smalls. And I'm mm-hmm. going to guess there are probably there's probably more than one Robert Smalls in sure. the history of the Confederacy out there. What are these monuments celebrating then? I would say I, would, I, I, I was thinking about that question. I just want a correction. We uh, yeah. not a correction, but I want to say this. We came so close 
to having Harriet Tubman, who did the exact same thing that Robert Smalls did, but she mm-hmm. was uh, an escaped enslaved person, couldn't read and couldn't write, and and led a and led a um, led a uh, a mission into South Carolina. She did the same thing. Uh, Harriet Tubman, we forget, was supposed to be on the twenty dollar bill starting in twenty twenty. Yeah. So and instead we've got Andrew Jackson, who of course exactly. was exactly. a slave owner. Because, exactly, exactly. Because Ron, because Donald Trump or because his administration or Steve Mnuchin or whomever else said that we're gonna put this on hold indefinitely. So, so that's the monument. That's the answer to the question. We could have had a woman who is revered in American history as being uh as as leading conservatively. Uh, estimates mm-hmm. 50 people some people it, some people think it was more like a thousand people conservatively leading them to freedom um, mm-hmm. and and freedom is our watchword liberation again the declaration of independence freedom is our watchword we could have had that person staring us at the face every time we open our wallets or we could have another slave owner so mm-hmm. you have the answer to your question right there what do we value we put our money on what we value Earlier on in the conversation, you talked about racism kind of almost being like a virus and mm-hmm. and just like polio, just like the bubonic plague, uh, there are a confluence of factors that can lead to an outbreak of racism. Mm-hmm. You know, what are those factors? Uh, my first my, my first incl- inclination to say when white folks get scared about their money, mm-hmm. they get, <laughs> again, academic circles call it sort of economic anxieties or economic grievances. but plainly speaking, when white folks get scared about their money, mm-hmm. that somebody's going to take their money, uh, somebody's going to kill them for their money, someone's, or they're going to be out of a job and can't make any more money. Um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, to be, to put, to be very specific, uh, the best example of that is that is we would call it redlining in in, yeah. in Chicago and what or redlining across the United States. But it comes down to this. If you're a white person and you've just gotten out of World War II, white man, mm-hmm. just gotten out of World War II, and the government's giving you $5,000 to do with whatever you want, you can either go to college or you can go, you can start a business or you can buy a home, and you buy, you use the money and you buy the home. And the reason why you buy the home is because, is, is, is because you know that the home's going to go up in value so that you mm-hmm. can, in 30 years, sell that home for much more than you bought it and either use that money for your retirement or use that money and give it out to your kids. And so you put everything you got into that home. And then someone says, if then, then your neighbors hear a rumor that says that black people are moving into the neighborhood. And then you start mm-hmm. to think, well, well, damn it. If black people or Latino people uh, uh, move into this neighborhood, the value of my house is going to go down. And all mm-hmm. that time and all that money that I put into uh, to, to, to build up this home and to build up this wealth and these, these beastly immigrants are going to come in and try to take my value? Oh, no. When, when white folks begin to think that uh, their way of life is in jeopardy, uh, Steve King is, is famous from Iowa, is famous for saying something like, you can't build Western civilization on the backs of immigrants. On the black mm-hmm. on the backs of people of color, when, you, when yeah. they begin to think that uh, they're yeah, that, that's uh, been disproven in this podcast, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> you know? uh, when, when white folks begin to think that their cultural legacy 
and their money is in danger, that's when that's when uh, things get mighty scratchy. It's sort of like an alcoholic in a way, where yes. you're a recovering alcoholic, where yes. you can, where it's always there and it's always kind of sitting in the background, and there, and you kind of have to consciously decide to fight against it. That's right, uh, and you kind you have to consciously decide that you are going to behave a certain way. That's but right. if things get stressful and maybe you're having trouble paying the bills and you know, maybe uh, your maybe your job is uncertain or what have you, That's and right. then somebody keeps showing up shoving a drink in your face, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. eventually you're probably going to break. That's right. And it's, it right. sounds like that's the situation we have. Yes. In fact, that's the exact analogy that I use. Exactly. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, it is. It is. That alcoholism. Okay. Yes, exactly. That that alcoholism <laughs> could be, if, if there are genetic origins of addiction, and we think that they mm-hmm. are, that yeah. alcoholism is part of our DNA. That, 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 it's, if, that, if alcoholism can be part of a person's DNA, then slavery yeah. and racism is a part of our country's DNA. And yeah. sometimes, you know, a lot of times we're able to keep it under control, but then something mm-hmm. happens. People get, people, yes, get worried about this, get worried about that uh, economically, socially, yeah. culturally, and they turn to white supremacy. They turn to racism uh, yeah. in order to deal with the problem. I think the the interesting thing that I've found in in not just this series, but in a lot of other series that I've I've done in um, for this podcast, what I think the founding fathers did is they created this absolute moral standard that actually has continuously defied or continuously been ahead of what people are actually thinking, and 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 the thing that I'm hopeful about is I'm hopeful that this ideal will continue to call people to question their own assumptions and to question the things that they believe to be true and and to question how they feel a, 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 an equal and, and just society or what an equal and just society should look like. Now, I would say that I think one way that we'll get over this is in realizing that we are no longer alone at the top of the hill, um, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> and, that, and that's coming from both sides. I think. I think for a long time, and this is this opens up uh, a discussion for your later po- podcast. But a long time, we've been able to ha- get away with a reckoning when it comes to race and racism, because America, the United States, has seen itself as exceptional. And mm-hmm. now, and now we're entering a phase in the 21st century in which we're realizing that no, we're not exceptional, not at all. Um, and what that means is that whatever whatever problems we're having with well, the problems that that we're having with white supremacy and resurgence of white supremacy, other nations have too are too grappling with the same thing. They might not call it white supremacy; they'll call it fascism. But I also want to look at it from a completely kind of, what's the word, a transcontinental. This discussion, in many ways, rejects sort of the globalist perspective. And yet, mm-hmm. the United States wouldn't be able to function without uh, the, the stream of immigrants from, from countries to the south of us. And now, the, the United States is looking at a serious challenge for supremacy from China. And we're going to have to grapple with that too. And that's going to change the way that we look at ourselves. Now, the big takeaway from this conversation was that our history 
And who we choose to celebrate and remember tells us about what we value. And if we look at some of the people on our currency and some of the people on our monuments, they at best show a culture that's indifferent to the negative impact these people had on African-Americans and at worst celebrate a time when African-Americans were bought and sold as property. And now every historical figure in America has a complex past when it comes to race. I mean, our founding fathers weren't exactly woke, but they at least pushed forth the novel idea that everyone is entitled to equal rights under the law. And that's something that was the bedrock of the movement to end slavery. And it was something that was the bedrock of the civil rights movement as well. Now, in contrast, there are four states in the nation that celebrate Robert E. Lee's birthday as a state holiday. This is a man whose historical relevance comes from fighting a war against the United States. Uh, It's also noteworthy that two of them Mississippi and Alabama, do so on the same day we celebrate Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday. So you can say what you want about celebrating heritage and making sure somebody was remembered, but, I mean, come on. Now, the second takeaway is something I referenced at the beginning of this episode, that racism is like the appendix. It is a vestigial organ that sits in America's body politic waiting to explode. And it's something we all have to be aware of in ourselves and actively fight against to ensure progress. And to that point, I'm also going to call myself out for referencing the current dialogue on race as a good thing, as it brought racism out of the shadows and really forced us to talk about it. And, you know, what I missed in that comment was that while it's really nice that I have the opportunity to have an open dialogue with other people about the state of race in America, people of color have to deal with actual real life emboldened racists in a very non-theoretical way. So, I told you my goal was to call out our own biases. I'll be calling out mine a lot since I'm the only one talking. Now, next week, I'll be talking with G. Reginald Daniel, professor of sociology at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and author of the book, Race and Multiraciality in the United States, a comparative look at the history and state of race relations in the United States and Brazil, another country with a long history of slavery and an equally complex situation when it comes to resolving issues of racial equality. One last note, you can now find additional content related to this episode on ydhty.com. It is live. That is Y as in you, D as in don't, H as in have, and you can probably guess the rest.com. Again, ydhty.com. I'll be putting up notes for this episode and some supporting content as well. So check it out. Per usual, production done by the big Gino, Jason Putney, annoying meow in the background while I record this, courtesy of my stupid cat. Uh, Everything else is done by yours truly. Until the next, this is Dan Sally signing off.